Hello and welcome to Sound Strategic. I'm Maya Nowens, Senior Fellow for Chinese Defense Policy and Military Modernization at the IISS. In today's episode, we'll discuss the key themes from the 17th IISS Manama Dialogue, which was held in Bahrain from the 19th to the 21st of November 2021. The dialogue is an annual international security and regional diplomatic summit held in Bahrain that brings together high-level representation from governments and stakeholders from across the Middle East and beyond. This year's event covered key regional security developments, ranging from questions about the U.S.'s security commitment to the region, the growing relationship between the Gulf and Asia, the cautious optimism around de-escalation efforts, the potential role of minilateral diplomacy in the region, and a renewed focus on the Red Sea as a geopolitical arena with its own unique dynamics. Before we look to the 18th IISS Manama Dialogue to be held from the 18th to the 20th of November 2022, we have three distinguished IISS experts with us today to discuss the reflections of this year's event. Sir Tom Beckett, Dr. Hassan Al-Hassan, and Camille Lons. Sir Tom Beckett is Executive Director of the IISS Middle East Office, where he plays a leading role in organizing the annual IISS Manama Dialogue and the Dialogue Sherpa Meeting. Dr. Hassan Al-Hassan is IISS Research Fellow for Middle East Policy, based in Bahrain, where he researches South Asian Middle Eastern relations, as well as the foreign policies and economic statecraft of Gulf states and regional security. Camille Lons is IISS Research Associate based in Bahrain, where she focuses her research on political and security developments in the Gulf region with a specific focus on Gulf countries' economic and political relations with Asian powers and the Horn of Africa. Well, Tom, Camille, and Hassan, welcome onto the show. Tom, let's start with you. Could you please give us an impression of this year's Manama Dialogue? Yes, of course. From my perspective, it was probably one of the strongest in substance dialogues that uh, I've had the pleasure of being at, four as a delegate and four in this role as the executive director of the Middle East office. Last year, because we were at the height of the COVID pandemic and, and before any vaccination programs had rolled out, we only managed to have a small number of delegates, 92 in total, supported by about uh, 200 plus officials. This year, because of the vaccination program and because of Bahrain's exemplary COVID precautionary measures, we, we've managed to have a total of 356 delegates on site, and we issued a total of 2,100 badges for both supporting staff, but also security and some of the hotel staff as well. And why was it so, so good? I think that there was a desire for people to get out and see each other at senior level, to take part in the both in the in in the discussion that we always generate, but also to have the the range of bilateral meetings. And um, I thought it was significant that Brett McGurk, in his in his plenary um, when he was speaking, said that uh, he had managed to get compressed nine months of work into a weekend because of the, the range of people he saw. If I just give you a quick snapshot, we had, uh, as I said, um, uh, 356 delegates from 34 countries. There were at least 63 bilaterals that we know of, and, and they are only the ones that we help uh, arrange. 30 government delegations, 16 ministers, nine of which were at cabinet level, three chiefs of defense, and interestingly this year, 11 chiefs of intelligence or vice chiefs of intelligence. So it was a significant gathering. I think what was said on the stage was, was important. I think the challenge that came from the floor was equally uh, important. And I think the presence of so many senior people contributed to bilateral um, discussions that hopefully will have gone some way to fulfill what is the double IRLS's core role, which is to promote international peace and security. 
Fantastic. So, Tom, a major theme at this year's Manama Dialogue was undeniably the U.S. commitment to the region following its withdrawal from Afghanistan and continued prioritization by the United States of the Indo-Pacific theater. Do you think that Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin succeeded in reassuring countries in the region that they were part of an unmatched, unrivaled, and unparalleled network of allies and partners, as he put it? Well, he certainly tried, but whether he actually succeeded or not is another matter. His message was clear enough, and I'll come back to that. But I think what he did when he said, or how the the U.S. relies on its network within the region, I think it was a poor example to use Afghanistan, because whilst tactically and logistically it was very impressive to get non-combatant evacuation of whatever it was, 124,000 people um, from Afghanistan, the earlier impression and the lasting impression in the region um, quite widely held is that the withdrawal from Afghanistan was was a uh, NATO and predominantly a US failure. Using that as an example of good networks probably wasn't that wise. But he did make the point that they would would favor diplomacy in their relations with Iran, but they would not allow Iran to um, uh, develop a nuclear weapon. Brett McGurk, in the concluding plenary, and whether this is because it was felt that there wasn't enough emphasis in, in Secretary Austin's statement, underlined quite a few of the topics that um, underlined some of the themes that Secretary Austin had used. Bookending the, the dialogue in that way did provide a level of emphasis on what the US is prepared to do. Whether it fell on deaf ears or not is another matter. I think, uh, and we heard it in, in the region, I'm, I'm sure Hassan will probably come back to it, a lot of regional governments are still hedging name another country that is willing to do what it, what the US is willing to do, even if it re- withdraws capability. Neither Russia nor China will invest in the security of this side of the Gulf against the other side of the Gulf. And you know, of course, the three of us, are, um, Hassan, Camille and I, are sitting here in the Manama office on the, on the western side of the Gulf. Um, it's just wholly... Um, to my mind, implausible that either Russia or China, with their clear stances on Iran um, and on partnerships in some areas, um, difficult partnerships, clearly, but Russia's uh, in Syria and China's through procurement of oil and so on, that they're going to take such a hardline stance as, as the US might. We'll come to both the JCPOA as well as the issue of Russia and China later in the show. But touching quickly on Israel and Palestine, at last year's Manama Dialogue, then-Israeli Foreign Minister Ashkenazi said that the diplomatic shift following the Abraham Accords that the UAE and Bahrain had struck with Israel could help resolve the Palestine-Israeli conflict. How did Palestine feature in this year's Manama Dialogue, and was there a sense of progress, do you think? No, not particularly. Um, and, I'm, and I'm not really surprised. You know, there's been 70 years of, of hostility between the Arab nations and Israel. So I think one year of the Abraham Accords that, that only includes um, four countries, uh, notwithstanding the fact that Egypt and, and Jordan already have peace deals with Israel, uh, it's not surprising that one year uh, is not going to make a, a huge difference. I think the what for me, what's what's difficult to comprehend is how The countries in the Abraham Accords are going to press Israel to commit to a two-state solution. Uh, All the other um, Arab countries, uh, and indeed majority Muslim countries, will will say that the two-state solution is the only um, option, and yet there doesn't seem to be any idea of how how, um, Israel is going to be compelled, coerced, cajoled, convinced to to go in to to, um, re-adopt or a two-state solution. 
I did think it was uh, interesting, however, when Prince Turki al-Faisal asked the Israeli NSA Halata a question about um, effectively saying that uh, the Palestinian problem is the root cause of, of all problems in the Gulf. I thought NSA Halata was, um, was very quick in his response when he said, and are you really telling me that when Iran attacked Abqaiq and the Aramco facility there, that that was our fault? Prince Turkey was nodding when the Halat asked that question. But again, I'm not so sure attacking Aramco from Iran is anything to do with Israel. But I don't see, um, I don't see how they're going to uh, square the circle. I think it's going to be harder now, uh, not harder. It's going to be um, achieving a two-state solution uh, through pressure from the Abraham Accords nations seems difficult. And overall, would you say that there was a sense of optimism or pessimism from regional leaders and experts at, at the Manama Dialogue this year? There's certainly evidence around the Manama Dialogue of de-escalation. Um, yesterday, you had um, His Highness uh, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed visiting uh, Ankara to see President uh, Erdogan. Whether there's policy to underpin that de-escalation that can go into the long term or whether it's just uh, policy by statements and, and, and sound bites is another matter. Statement, sound bites and movement, um, movement to capitals and talking to capitals. There seemed to be a degree of optimism, but I'm not sure what it was founded on. Hassan, let's talk about that regional de-escalation. Did you get a sense that this will be long lasting? And could you perhaps talk a little bit about the drivers and its limitations? There is a pronounced uh, trend towards de-escalation, but I think uh, we need to recognize that it's a fairly vulnerable one uh, and one that is open to being uh, spoiled by a number of uh, actors that don't necessarily have an interest in uh, uh, seeing it materialize or, or deepen uh, even further. Uh, and so I think, yes, a strong and pronounced trend towards de-escalation, uh, the Al-Ula summit, where the Gulf Rift between uh, the uh, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, and Egypt on the one hand, and Qatar on the on- other hand, uh, was resolved. Uh, is obviously a, a case in point. Uh, another is the uh, de-escalatory uh, trend in Turkey's relations with the Arab Gulf states, uh, and we've recently seen uh, Emirati uh, Crown Prince, the, uh, the Crown, Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, uh, visit Ankara. Uh, in what is really a fairly substantial shift in uh, Turkey-Emirati relations. Uh, And of course, we're seeing the um, regional diplomatic uh, track between Saudi Arabia and Iran uh, as another avenue of of de-escalation, so to speak. Uh, And so, yes, there is a region-wide trend towards de-escalation. But as as I said, there are a number of actors uh, that don't necessarily have an interest in seeing uh, regional de-escalation. So, for example, Iran's non-state partners and and proxy groups and militias uh, in Yemen, for example, the Houthis or the Ansarullah movement, clearly don't have an interest in seeing the Saudis and the Iranians agree a deal over their heads, so to speak, in Yemen, uh, a deal that could uh, lead to limiting or curtailing Iran's support for the Houthi movement in, in Yemen. Um, Iran's non-state partners in uh, Iraq are uh, other actors that could end up spoiling uh, Saudi-Iranian de-escalation as well. Some of these de-escalatory processes, such as the Al-Ula, haven't necessarily resolved the underlying fundamental issues. So, for example, Bahraini-Qatari relations uh, are still not back to normal. There, there still is, is a, an absence of formal diplomatic ties, uh, and uh, tensions continue to 
uh, uh, to simmer under the surface. Um, um, and I think ironically as well, the nuclear talks and the, the uncertain outlook of Iran's uh, nuclear program and whether Iran and the P5 plus one uh, reach a deal by the end of the year uh, is something that could also end up spoiling or undermining a regional de-escalation. Because if we see, if there ends up being a, a, a failure to reach a, a diplomatic agreement on Iran's nuclear program, then we could very well see a rise in tensions. Uh, we could see uh, unilateral action that could lead to an escalatory spiral, and that will definitely have an adverse uh, effect on, on regional de-escalation. So yes, uh, uh, there is a tendency towards and a trend uh, uh, towards regional uh, de-escalation. But as I said, there are a number of uh, uh, spoilers and factors that could undermine the process. Well, let's talk about Iran now then. In his speech, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin stated that the U.S. remained committed to preventing Iran from gaining a nuclear weapon and committed to a diplomatic outcome of the nuclear issue. However, he also stated that if Iran wasn't willing to engage seriously, then the U.S. will look at all options necessary to keep the U.S. secure. So, Hassan, what's the view in the region of the JCPOA in Iran at the moment? What are the priorities and concerns of countries like Israel or Gulf states? I think the U.S. was very clear, be it through the um, speech of, of Secretary Austin or Brett McGurk or even the uh, side briefing by uh, the U.S. Special Envoy on Iran, Rob Malley, during the Manama Dialogue. The U.S.'s talking points and position on Iran's nuclear program and what it is uh, willing and not willing to tolerate, I think, was was absolutely clear. The Americans were also emphatic as to... Uh, uh, the fact that they were willing to do all that is necessary to prevent Iran from being uh, a nuclear weapon. But the issue from the regional perspective, from the perspective of uh, the U.S.'s traditional security partners in the Gulf, the Arab Gulf states, uh, is that really they're they're between a rock and a hard place. Uh, So on the one hand, uh, if the talks end up failing and uh, we don't get a, a diplomatic agreement on Iran's nuclear program, then the uh, probability or likelihood of regional escalation and even perhaps military action uh, becomes much higher. Uh, And that will obviously have a massively detrimental effect on their own security. I think the last thing the Arab Gulf states want to see is a regional war uh, in which they get dragged in because obviously they host uh, uh, US uh, forces and troops uh, and so will inevitably be dragged into the, the fray. On the other hand, if Iran and the P5 plus one do agree uh, on uh, and do end up reaching a deal that places limits on Iran's nuclear program, then the Arab Gulf states suspect that this will be sort of an off-ramp for the U.S. to de- disengage strategically from the region even further. Uh, and the U.S. will very much use uh, uh, the, the, a new nuclear deal with Iran as an excuse not to engage Iran on other topics, such as Iran's support for militias or Iran's proliferation of missiles or its uh, use of short-range uh, uh, missile capabilities. So in a sense, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a lose-lose situation uh, from the Arab Gulf perspective. The main ask and the main expectation uh, uh, on, on the Arab Gulf side has been to ask for greater clarity in terms of what U.S. policy on Iran's non-nuclear 
related foreign policy aspects of its behavior are. And so what is the U.S. policy on countering Iran's uh, use and proliferation of missiles? What is the U.S. willing to do to curtail Iran's support of non-state actors? I think these are all uh, um, issues that are uh, really at the top of the priority list of the Arab Gulf states. Uh, And I think at least according to the conversations that I've been having over the past uh, few days, and certainly during the Manama dialogue, uh, that there was a lack of U.S. clarity uh, as to where it stood on all of these non-nuclear related issues. Thank you. Maybe moving on to Camille. The Red Sea has seemingly re-emerged as an arena of competition and geopolitical importance. How was this reflected at the Manama dialogue this year? Thanks, Maya. So yes, indeed, there was a very interesting uh, session this year that that touched on uh, Red Sea dynamics. We had the the Kenyan Secretary of Defense, uh, the Yemeni Foreign Minister, we had also the the EU Special Representative for the Horn of Africa. I think there is a growing uh, acknowledgement of the Red Sea as a region that has a geopolitical region with dynamics of its own, because for a long time it's been perceived as being a sort of border region between more important uh, geopolitical complexes. And we've seen over the past maybe 10 years, uh, observe, like international observers and policymakers that are increasingly uh, uh, looking at uh, how the Red Sea is, uh, is becoming a, a geopolitical region with dynamics of its own. We see, and, and this is something that the, the EU special representative uh, for the Horn of Africa was, was pointing in her speech, the interconnected nature of conflicts and security dynamics across both shores uh, of, uh, of the Red Sea. Um, it's, uh, it's a region that uh, uh, has long been uh, very important for the international community because it's a, it's a major maritime uh, trade uh, choke point. Uh, it's bordered by a number of uh, uh, unstable countries, uh, either in conflict uh, or, or with uh, going through uh, uh, difficult political transitions. But what uh, what we're uh, increasingly seeing is the entanglement of the conflict dynamics uh, or of uh, political dy- dynamics across both shores of the of the Red Sea, uh, either through uh, uh, spillover of conflicts, uh, terrorism, piracy, refugee flows. Uh, arms smuggling as well between between uh, countries like Yemen and, and the Horn of Africa, uh, but also through the uh, projection of uh, external influence, especially from uh, uh, other countries like Gulf states that have uh, increasingly tried to shape political dynamics in their uh, Western strategic flank and, uh, and, uh, and projecting their own sometimes uh, internal uh, divisions on the, on the Horn of Africa. A third layer as well, uh, that both the EU Special Representative and the Kenyan Secretary of Defense uh, underlined was the increasing presence of external powers as well, uh, including uh, China, Russia, and, uh, and how this is reviving a bit the, the, the specter of, of uh, uh, great power competition potentially. And the Kenyan uh, Secretary of Defense highlighted the the militarization uh, of the region and the potential destabilizing effects uh, this could have as well. So what's it, what is interesting is to see how the Red Sea fits into those wider security complexes, the Horn of Africa, uh, the, the Middle East, but also the wider 
east-west axis of the Indo-Pacific and how this creates a continuity uh, between these different uh, uh, geopolitical theaters. Camille and Hassan, how was great power competition reverberating in the Gulf then? And in particular, do you see U.S. policy shaping Russian and Chinese behavior in the region? What we have seen uh, in, in, on the Gulf side uh, in recent years is a growing effort to diversify their relations away from their traditional Western partners at a moment when, and, and Tom was already alluding to that, but at a moment when uh, these countries fear that uh, the U.S. is trying to, uh, to lessen its commitment to, to, to the region. I think what was very interesting in this uh, Manama dialogue this year is that uh, the Chinese were not present. And so the, we had uh, discussions uh, quite, although China was a bit the elephant in the room, but the, the discussions were quite centered also on, on the Malaysian uh, uh, defense minister, the Indonesian defense minister. And so I think that is interesting because it shifts the, the focus. The, we tend to have a myopic focus a little bit at the moment on the uh, US-China rivalry and so uh, how the Gulf fits into this. And it actually shows how this is not just about China from the Gulf perspective, but it's about how they are diversifying their ties with a wide range of partners in Asia in, uh, as well and uh, Southeast Asia, but also with uh, India, Japan, Korea. And this is part of a, of a broader effort of uh, Gulf states to diversify their ties in a wide range of, uh, of sectors, economic sectors, uh, in energy, but also in uh, new technologies and potentially also in, uh, in security ties. And so it was interesting also to take that question of the, the relationship between uh, Asia and the Gulf out of only the, the, this bipolar division between uh, China and, and the U.S. That's right. There is diversification. But I am going to press you on the issue of Russia and China to ask where countries in the region align with both of these actors and where they might not align with both of these actors and what that means for their ability to balance uh, their relationship with the United States and whether or not this creates dilemmas for regional countries, particularly in the Gulf. Two recent events uh, or recent uh, occurrences. One, um, the US, um, I guess it was probably a day march of some description on the Emirates about the potential Chinese base um, and what that might mean for um, F-35 deals and so on and so forth, but certainly an expression of displeasure that they might have a presence in, in, in the Emirates. And we'd previously in, in years past seen that, that had the same thing had happened in uh, Oman at uh, Mina Dukum where um, there was an idea that the Chinese would establish a base there and the Imanis in a much more gracious way were persuaded out of that um, by the Americans. But also you, just before the dialogue, we saw that um, in an almost you know, wholly dismissive way, Saudi said, we're not buying S-400. So after having had, you know, sort of had all these meetings and trips to Russia and so on and so forth and signing you know, pacts and so on, then it's just sort of, yeah, we're not going to buy it. So I think whilst there is a desire to, to diversify in the security space, um, it may be less so about uh, platforms. I think, you know, sort of the idea that you could, you could replace your military hardware with Russian hardware or Chinese hardware um, over anything less than a 25 year period is just 
wholly impractical, um, if, if nothing else, because of the manpower that needs to be trained to operate that equipment. So, so I, think, I think that is realized. Um, I also think that um, it's, it's interesting that, you know, that Russia has always tried to, it, Russia and Iran periodically float this idea of, a, of an equivalent thing of an OSCE in the Gulf so that it can get rid of foreign powers and, and you know, the, the Gulf can look after itself. And of course, that's all part of the piece of get rid of America out of the Gulf. So, you know, in many ways, Iran and the, the Iran's problem for the Gulf is, is a boon for Russia because it's a continual and perpetual nuisance um, and they can be a nuisance however they want it to be. So, and, it, and it's pretty light cost nuisance. Um, for China, there's other, other motivations and Camille is far more qualified than me to talk about those. I would say the the so to come back on the on the relationship with China, this is a relationship with the Gulf that has been uh, developing uh, quite rapidly uh, over the past uh, two decades. Uh, uh, originally, mainly in the energy sector, and it's still the, the the big pillar of that relationship. And in recent years, it has uh, diversified as well towards new areas of partnership, uh, including in uh, new technologies and health cooperation we've seen during the, the COVID pandemic, uh, political and even to, to some extent, uh, a bit of security relations as well. And, um, and of course, uh, investments in the field of infrastructures uh, uh, within the, the framework of the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, the, the, the area where we've seen uh, increasing frictions with, uh, with uh, the US on this front in recent years was the field of uh, new technologies and especially the question of 5G networks where uh, Huawei has been uh, present pretty much in all GCC countries to help them develop their 5G infrastructures. And this has raised some concerns in the US in terms of the type of vulnerabilities this could create uh, for US interest, uh, especially to these countries where the US is uh, exporting uh, sensitive military uh, technologies and, and cooperating uh, uh, in the defense sector especially in the UAE, where uh, at the moment uh, they are discussing with the US the idea of uh, potentially acquiring the F-35. Uh, and, um, and so this question of 5G, but also cooperation in new emerging technology, especially AI, that can have potential security ramifications, this has created uh, some, uh, some frictions uh, with, uh, with the US that has trying to pressure these countries to um, to be careful uh, on not crossing any red lines uh, with uh, with the Chinese on these specific uh, sectors that could be sensitive uh, at some point. The problem is that the U.S. has not been always uh, very good at setting the red lines or very clear with these countries. And so for now, for example, all of them have moved forward with uh, with Huawei, for, for example, in their in their five G infrastructures. And, um, and so this is one point of, of important friction that we are, uh, that we're seeing in the region at the moment. And I suppose it doesn't help that they might be looking at countries like the Republic of Korea, whereby they've created a, a bubble of telecommunications infrastructure around defense installations with the United States to segment off uh, that particular part of their network that might then for the, for them be an example of how to move forward without uh, ripping Huawei out of their networks entirely. 
Maybe moving on to my last question, Hassan, considering the concerns that we've talked about uh, from the region's perspective in today's podcast and the general sense of doubt about the U.S. commitment in the region, are we seeing new groupings form uh, regionally to address some of these concerns? And I point here particularly to new partnerships and minilaterals. That's a really interesting, uh, I think, one, and it really ties back into the preceding discussion uh, uh, because the, the underlying theme here is the Gulf uh, and the Arab states or the Middle Eastern states' relations with external partners. Partly what's going on is that um, I, I like to take the, the longer historical view on this, and I think uh, um, there's been a long pattern of diversification of external relations uh, away from traditional Western-centric security partnerships. So this is something I think that uh, proceeded in earnest uh, uh, since the early 2000s following the 9-11 attacks. Uh, very largely, where we've seen a real interest on the part of the Arab Gulf states, for example, in cultivating a broader range of uh, relationships uh, uh, outside of, of the Western sphere, but also outside of the uh, uh, of their own neighborhoods. And so we've seen Saudi Arabia and the UAE uh, and others uh, reach out to China and India uh, and other uh, Asian players. I think acceleration of the US-China rivalry has been a problematic development for these states, especially as, as the US uh, uh, becomes uh, more demanding as to uh, uh, how these uh, uh, players can and in what sectors these players can uh, or, or cannot cooperate with, with the Chinese. You're right in pointing to the proliferation of so-called minilateral initiatives. Uh, so one of them, for example, in the Eastern Mediterranean is the Eastern Mediterranean Gas Forum, which is clearly uh, oriented against Turkey. Uh, the uh, Abraham Accords, which seem to have uh, at least partly Iran in sight. Uh, the uh, so-called Middle Eastern Quartet or West Asian Quad, uh, which is the which comprises uh, India, uh, the U.S., Israel, and the UAE, uh, and a number of others that are really being announced and and disbanded. Uh, uh, almost week in, uh, week out. Uh, the issue is that uh, there isn't necessarily always a, an overriding or a clear geopolitical uh, orientation or a clear geopolitical logic uh, that um, uh, uh, neatly organizes uh, all of these uh, uh, groups or all of these alignments. So it's really a mishmash of overlapping uh, 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 alignments and uh, partnerships that are being created. So take, uh, for uh, and there are multiple examples to allude to this, right? And so on the one hand, uh, look at India's involvement in the region, right? India is part of this uh, Mid Middle Eastern Quad that comprises Israel, the UAE, the US, countries that seem to, uh, uh, that have to a very large extent, difficult relations with Iran. Uh, um, and, and I think part of the reason uh, um, and this is part of, of the difficulty for India, because on the other hand, uh, India has very good relations with Iran. It sees Iran uh, uh, as a um, uh, difficult partner nonetheless, but still a partner that is very important in its own connectivity towards Afghanistan and towards the Central Asian republics. Uh, and so I don't think there are clear uh, uh, region-wide, let's say, geopolitical uh, uh, alignments it's more about, it really looks like a dizzying complex mishmash and overlapping uh, uh, networks of partnerships uh, that are being created. And sometimes, uh, ironically, different members of these different uh, minilateral initiatives have very different ideas uh, as to what these initiatives and, and partnerships and groups 
uh, are actually about and, and who they're, they're, they're meant to counter and so on. Uh, and so there are no neat uh, um, geopolitical logics at, at play here. With Hassan's part, and he was talking about the Eastern Med um, piece, and I just thought we, we invited, um, for the first time, we had the Greek foreign minister speaking at, at the Manama Dialogue, uh, and he spoke excellently and really charismatically. What I thought was interesting, notwithstanding the Eastern Med piece, um, but and also that the, the France-Greece uh, agreement that was recently uh, signed, but was the, the the level of engagement that Greece was conducting down into the Arabian Peninsula, and I wondered, you know, was that that a bit of a, uh, to try and sort of encircle the Turkish engagement that's already down to certain parts of the of the peninsula, and I just wondered when he, when he was standing up there and, and talking about what what he what what might uh, be heralded for. For Greece in the future, where else they might go. But I just thought it was an interesting dimension that I hadn't seen coming. We're running out of time, so I wanted to ask each of you what your final key takeaway was from the dialogue this year that you think our listeners should keep an eye on. 2019, um, the Americans under the Trump administration recognized Israeli annexation of the Golan Heights. Um, uh, and when quizzed on it, despite all of the UN resolutions that say that they shouldn't, um, uh, Pompeo, Secretary Pompeo said, we've just got to um, uh, accept the facts on the ground. Uh, and we, we see a lot of accepting of the facts on the ground now, you know, with, um, with uh, Emirati outreach to Assad, with uh, King Hussein of Jordan, um, uh, with Assad and so on and so forth. With, uh, and although it wasn't, um, it, it was slightly um, discounted, you know, the discussions about whether they'll be, Syria will be brought back into the Arab League, you know, just accepting the facts on the ground there. Um, the, the, the chief of staff of, of, of Yemen was very clear that for him there was no um, political solution with the, uh, with the Houthi, even if the foreign minister said that there was, um, but he reckoned that there wasn't. So it may be that there'll have to be some sort of accepting of the facts on the ground. Now, the facts on the ground um, in Yemen are that the Houthi are in control. So that'll be a that'll be a difficult one for them to square and then the last one i guess and just stepping slightly out of the out of the actual middle east and into afghanistan is that and it was said uh, previously and i thought it was a really interesting point is that despite everyone's um uh, um uh concern about the taliban takeover in kabul um because of the security threats and the potential, the, the, the growing humanitarian problem inside Afghanistan, as someone said, um, it is in all of our interest for the Taliban to succeed. So another accepting of the facts on the ground. And I wonder whether this just continues to undermine um, the rules-based order that we all um, would hope uh, uh, would govern international relations, but which is which also is um, is. Uh, uh, um, not always the most popular and certainly in this part of the world, who wrote the rules and for who and why should we be governed by them? Another issue that came up during the discussions um, uh, over the two days of the Manama Dialogue was the question of the security dividends of the Abraham Accords. Uh, and to what extent um, can uh, Israel cooperate in the security sphere with the Arab Gulf states? Uh, I think one issue uh, on which the Israelis have been rather non-committal is the question of whether Israel is willing or prepared to share or sell uh, missile defense technology to their Abraham Accords partners. Uh, there are also a few rumors uh, launched, uh, um, I think, one day before the dialogue, that Israel uh, was joining the combined maritime forces uh, that are stationed uh, and, and headquartered out of um, Bahrain. I think 
that seems highly unlikely to happen uh, because there are a number of um, members of the combined maritime forces um, that don't necessarily uh, approve of, of Israel's joining uh, um, the, the CMF. Kuwait is probably one of them. Uh, Pakistan may be another. Uh, but we're seeing a, a, um, a testing of the of the of the uh, boundaries, so to speak, and and and, and so. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we're we're also seeing on the one hand uh, Israel uh, uh, um, uh, conducting joint naval exercises with uh, the United States, with the UAE, with Bahrain and the Red Sea. Uh, and so on the other, on the one hand, there is a clear desire to uh, uh, um, uh, partner with Israel uh, in the security and military sphere. And so these exercises, uh, naval exercises in the Red Sea, are one example of that. But on the other hand, there are clear limitations as to what Israel can do, uh, because I think an Israeli military presence on uh, in the Gulf is likely to send a, a strong message to Iran, and Iran is likely to see it as being a, a hostile message. Uh, and I think, uh, especially in multilateral security initiatives, such as the Combined Maritime Forces, uh, we're likely to see a fair degree of apprehension from other regional players that might not necessarily be as comfortable as uh, the UAE or Bahrain in seeing a stronger Israeli security presence here. For me, the, the most interesting part of this Manama dialogue was how it puts the, the, the Middle East in the wider context, uh, or, or, or regionally speaking. Uh, when we look at uh, uh, there was the Red Sea panel uh, with the Kenyan defense minister. There was uh, the, the opening address uh, was made by the Indonesian uh, uh, defense minister or the Malaysian on the on the panel uh, on uh, on Gulf Asia. And um, I think this is for me the thing that I I, I retain the most from this Manama dialogue is how the the Gulf is uh, increasingly seeing itself uh, in this wider. Uh, regional uh, uh, context that is no longer only focused, the, the discussion is no longer only focused on this relationship with Western powers or with the US. And um, during the, the Young Leaders program as well that uh, that we had just before the Manama Dialogue, uh, it was something as well that was very present uh, in the discussions. We had uh, uh, very good presentations from our young leaders on uh, Gulf Asia relations. And so I think that we're seeing a new generation as well in the Gulf that is increasingly looking at those relations with with Asia, with uh, Africa, etc., and and no longer only uh, considering themselves uh, in in the Gulf uh, Western uh, angle. Well, Tom, Camille, and Hassan, congratulations on a fascinating and successful Manama Dialogue 2021. Uh, thank you for joining me on the show today. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. And thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you'd like to watch the recordings of the plenary sessions and find out more about the key takeaways, visit our website on www.iiss.org. Please do follow, rate, and subscribe to Sound Strategic wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts to keep up to date with all the latest episodes. And for more in-depth analysis of the key international security and defense issues from around the world, be sure to follow the WSS on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you and see you next time.